First of all, this livelihoods crisis precisely speaks to trying to use this concept of relative surplus population. That this livelihoods crisis means that we're not talking about small groups that are left behind. You know, in a country like Pakistan, you were talking about tens and tens of millions of people who basically have been left behind. And ruling elites or ruling classes ultimately, at the end of the day, don't care about them because they are superfluous to their needs. And so that's where this livelihoods crisis comes from. This agrarian crisis generates a livelihoods crisis which squeezes people out, or if they stay, they've got no mechanism for living. And it's a livelihoods crisis that we see in many parts of the world. We've just heard from Dr. Harun Akramlodi, our guest today. He's professor of economics and development studies at Trent University in Canada. He's also the editor of the Canadian Journal of Development Studies and the author of Hungry for Change, Farmers, Food Justice, and the Agrarian Question. Dr. Akramlodi is a leading scholar of agrarian change. He's done fieldwork in Pakistan, Fiji, Vietnam, and a whole bunch of other places. And he focuses, amongst other things, especially on gendered dimensions of agrarian political economy. I should also note that he's been a very generous mentor to myself guiding a lot of my work, so I'm quite glad to be speaking with him. Dr. Akram Lodi was speaking about a generalized agrarian crisis, which causes a livelihood crisis, which, as he points out, leaves behind tens of millions of people in developing countries like Pakistan. Now, we've had quite a few podcasts discussing agrarian political economy, and that probably has to do with the fact that it's something I tend to study and teach about a lot. I think it's also because the stakes in a country like Pakistan are quite high. So allow me to take a bit more time than usual before we get to Dr. Akram Lodi to lay out these stakes of why this question is important and and really what scholars of political economy mean when they talk about the agrarian question. Now, in most developing countries of the global south, the question of agriculture is pretty important. Agriculture occupies a large percentage of the gross domestic product, the GDP, a big chunk of the economically active population is in agriculture. In Pakistan, it's it's near 40%. Agriculture produces important commodities for export, think coffee, and also important raw materials that get processed in manufacturing, like cotton, which becomes textiles. Not to mention the key role of agriculture in producing food. What all of this means is that in much of the developing world, most of the population lives in rural areas, or if not most, in a pretty big chunk. The exception might be much of Latin America, where a lot of people live in urban areas, but that's a distinct kind of dynamic, which we're not going to go into today. But the general picture of agriculture in the developing world that I'm talking about is pretty diametrically opposed to most of what we call the developed world. And what I mean here is that most of the population does not live in rural areas. Most of them live in urban areas. Also, the vast majority of people are not working in agriculture. They're either in manufacturing or really most of them are in services. And even the service sector is not the informal kind that we find in developing countries. The difference between the developing world and the developed world can probably be traced back to industrialization. 
That's what we mean by developed countries generally is that they're industrialized. Moving people out of agriculture and into industry are what development economists call structural transformation. For many critical scholars of political economy, this structural transformation is linked to the development of capitalist relations of production in a particular region. As Shami Ghosh put it many podcasts ago when we spoke about the origins of capitalism, the question for him really is, how do most people in the world go from being producers of food to being consumers of food? The development of capitalism in Western Europe begins in agriculture. It ends up in industry. So for much of the 20th century, the question for many formerly colonized nations was one of achieving this kind of structural transformation. The development of capitalist relations and especially capitalist industry in place of a predominantly agricultural society. Arguably, the only ones who did that were certain East Asian countries like Korea, Taiwan, and increasingly China, and maybe a few other countries here and there. Now, critical scholars of agrarian political economy call this the agrarian question, or rather, they talk about three interrelated agrarian questions. And I'll try to illustrate this with my basic understanding of South Korea and, and Taiwan. The first agrarian question is, how do you get from non-capitalist or pre-capitalist agricultural relations to capitalist relations in agriculture? What does capitalist agriculture look like? It's not going to look the same everywhere. It's never looked the same everywhere in Europe. It's not going to look the same everywhere in the global south or third world. Uh, but some people put this transition toward capitalist agriculture in terms of a transition from feudalism or tributary modes of production to a capitalist mode of production. Laying out what this really means is pretty complex, but one key idea is that the development of specifically capitalist relations leads to the transformation of landed overlords as well as the peasantry. Basically, your agrarian classes get transformed. And by peasant, we mean somebody who owns or rents land and mostly farms it using their own labor and their family labor. Now, as we see in the case of most developed countries, the peasantry basically stops existing. They are transformed mostly into waged labor and then later into people working in knowledge industries or service sectors and stuff like that. Now, in Korea and Taiwan, what the first agrarian question looks like is that after the Second World War in the 1950s, the capitalist-oriented elites and the U.S. military occupation, because these countries were occupied by the United States, basically pushed through a program of land reforms. They took the land of these large landlords, there was a lot of concentration of land at the top, and they gave that land to the peasants, to the people who were farming it, land to the tiller. And they also supported peasant agriculture through irrigation, through credit, through other kinds of supports. And this raised the productivity of agriculture. It was one way of introducing new relations of production into agriculture. Okay, so what does this mean about the transformation of these peasants into waged labor. This leads us to the second agrarian question, which is how does capitalist agriculture or really agriculture in general contribute to or maybe not contribute to industrialization? The question here is can changing the way stuff is produced in agriculture lead to greater productivity and ideally an, an, a rapid increase in productivity so that you can use that surplus from agriculture to pay for the capital accumulation that you need to get your industry going. 
see in South Korea and Taiwan, what this looks like is once you've given the land to all those peasants and you're giving them support, you can also tax them. And that taxation forms a surplus. And that surplus helps with industrialization. Now, as productivity increases in agriculture through new technologies or through better seeds and better fertilizers, which is new technologies, you need less people on the land. And these people are then incentivized to go to cities and work in factories, to work in industry. There's other sources of capital accumulation as well, very important sources of capital accumulation. But agriculture certainly plays an important role. The third agrarian question is kind of related to this, and, and that's the role of agrarian classes, especially the more subordinated agrarian classes in struggles for democracy or socialism. It's important to note that in, in the early days, in the 1950s, both of South Korea and Taiwan's elites and the U.S. military occupation were pretty worried that their large agrarian populations would end up supporting communism. Because in China, and Taiwan is part of China, and in North Korea, which is north of South Korea, those countries were taken over by communists who immediately implemented land reforms. And they did that because they came to power through peasant revolutions, and that made them pretty popular. You can imagine when tenants are like, we're getting land, they're pretty happy about it. And that is obviously a threat to the capitalist-oriented elites in South Korea and in Taiwan. Not only that, the peasants, especially in South Korea, were quite oriented towards pro-democracy, pro-socialist, pro-communist movements and parties. And so there was quite brutal repression in South Korea that put a damper on this kind of enthusiasm for socialism and communism and helped establish a capitalist dictatorship. But you can't just do everything through repression. If you want to stay in power for long, especially with communism at the, at the doorstep, you know, you got to give something to the peasants and to the lower classes. And, and that is one of the things that explains the land reforms in South Korea and Taiwan and ultimately the program of broad-based industrialization that they undertook. Now, I offer the examples of South Korea and Taiwan because they represent what many people consider successful examples of agrarian transition in the 20th century, particularly for countries that were formerly colonized. Most countries do not appear to have achieved this kind of transition. Now, according to Henry Bernstein, and it's really Henry Bernstein's work that I'm drawing on to lay out these three questions, and he's drawing on the work of Terence Byers. Now, according to Henry Bernstein, the possibility of that kind of agrarian transition that a lot of countries were trying to achieve in the 20th century doesn't apply anymore in the aftermath of neoliberal globalization. See, with neoliberal globalization, you get a loosening of controls on capital. International capital can go now easily to developing countries, relatively easily. And multinational corporations want to do this because all that labor in the global south is much cheaper than the labor in the global north. So what this means is that in these countries, the elites can put forward a program of industrialization that's based on inviting foreign investment. Foreign direct investment will come and they will give you the capital that you need for industrialization. So you don't need to resolve that agrarian question. You don't need to think about how an agrarian surplus can fund your industrialization. And so that means for Bernstein that the agrarian question is resolved as far as capital is concerned. But 
this kind of leads to an industrial sector that is relatively small relative to the large population you've got in that country. And it doesn't really generate employment for the vast majority of people because industry that's capital intensive doesn't suck in that labor. And so the agrarian question of labor is still not resolved. So then there's an agrarian crisis. So what does this agrarian crisis look like? How is it different from agricultural problems in the 20th century? What does neoliberal globalization and especially the policies that flow from it mean for agriculture? How does that change the structure of relations in the countryside? And where may things be headed in the shadow of COVID-19? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we discuss the relation between politics and economics, between power and production, and a bunch of other stuff. I am your host, Numan Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. So, to discuss the agrarian crisis and the agrarian question in the 21st century, let us turn to Dr. Harun Akram Lodi. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is a term that you use, and a lot of scholars of agrarian change use this term, which is the agrarian crisis. Mm. And I guess the idea is that right now, if you're a farmer, if you're a peasant, if you're involved in agricultural production in most of the world, or perhaps the entire world, you're not doing that well. Can you explain this to us a little bit? Sure. Well, in the contemporary world food system, what we've seen over the course of the past 25 years are processes of increased corporate consolidation in both uh, the upstream and downstream activities removed from farming. And that corporate consolidation has has led uh, to increased monopoly power in areas like uh, supermarkets, in areas like seed provision, agrochemicals, grain trading, things of that sort. And along the same time, over the course of particularly the past 15 years, we've witnessed increased financialization uh, in the food system. Now, what this means is that for many small-scale farmers around the world, but also for many medium and indeed for some large-scale farmers, the farm gate prices that they're receiving for their crops fail to cover their costs of production something which decades ago Henry Bernstein referred to as a simple reproduction squeeze. And when the revenues from your crops uh, uh, fail to cover your costs of production, farmers get locked into cycles of debt distress and immiserization. This is a cycle which is very, very different from that which was witnessed over the course of the second half of the 20th century, Mm. where... There was, in many parts of the world, some form of rural accumulation and some form of rural capitalist development. So what we see in the 21st century is a rural polarization which is much more extreme, much more severe than it would have been even 35 years ago. As we see in the hyper-inequalities of contemporary neoliberal globalization, those hyper-inequalities are reproduced in food and farming systems, whereby a very small number have the bulk and a very large number have very little. And it's increasingly difficult to have any kind of uh, viable livelihood 
from farming alone. So when we speak of an agrarian crisis, what we're really speaking of is a, is a fundamental shift in the challenges facing farming communities around the world in the 21st century compared to the 20th. Right, and I think uh, that's such an important point that you're making that in the 20th century, there were opportunities for rural accumulation, maybe more broadly in a sense than there are now. And I think we'll return to this inequality in a bit. Uh, I want to turn to one thing that you've pointed out, uh, which I think helps explain this agrarian crisis where people can't even uh, cover the costs of their production, which and why it differs from what existed before, which is neoliberal globalization. Now, I don't necessarily want to get into a definition of this. I think if, if listeners and students want to get a sense of that, they can listen to the podcast with Utsa Patnaik or uh, with Ying Chan or with Intan Suwandi. So we've discussed globalization in different times. But I think what is maybe uh, more interesting is the impact, specific impact of neoliberalism and globalization on agricultural policies, agrarian policies in the third world, and what this looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one, one kind of sub-question or supra-question there is what we see nowadays in India where mm-hmm. farmers are protesting these new reforms around getting rid of support prices, uh, where the government will will guarantee a price for a good, uh, especially wheat, um, or undermining that system. Like, are these are these kinds of neoliberal reforms? Is, are we just seeing neoliberalism catching up with India, something that had happened in the rest of the world, or or what's going on here? Well, I think in the Indian case, what we've seen is a a stuttering, shall we say, of neoliberalism since 1991, um, when by most accounts, you could say that neoliberalism in India and the opening up of the economy really started. And when I say stuttering, what I mean is that the BJP, the ruling party, the Bharatiya Janata Party in India, has stuttered in its implementation of neoliberalism over the time it's been in power. But certainly the reforms to agricultural marketing, which it tried to push through last year, are wholesale neoliberal reforms of a scale which in India we haven't really seen since independence. And these neoliberal reforms come 30 years after similar sorts of reforms were done in sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America. So in India, we see uh, uh, that uh, farming in the northwest of the country, uh, in in Punjab and Haryana, western UP, that um, grain farming, wheat farming in particular, uh, farmers get price supports. These price supports were established, you know, during the Green Revolution in the early 1970s, the mid-1970s, in order to ensure that farmers adopted Green Revolution technologies, make farming remunerative enough that they would invest in the purchased seeds, invest in the purchased fertilizers, invest in the purchased pesticides that were needed to secure productivity gains from Green Revolution technologies. Now, what these reforms do is that uh, they threaten to take away, possibly, those price supports. Um, Because what the reforms, the proposed reforms suggested was that Uh, farmers would no longer have to sell uh, to government intermediaries. They'd be able to sell to private sector traders. And this then 
generated a revolt by Indian farmers because um, this poses to them a threat, you know, that the option of being able to sell to the private sector is in fact um, the entry point by which a public sector option could start to be removed from mm -hmm. them. That market imperatives could start to be imposed upon them in ways which are much, much stronger than is currently the case. Um, because, of course, choices in markets are constrained by the terms and conditions by which those markets operate. And if you introduce rules which favor private sector operation in markets, private sector decision-making can come to shape the way in which those, operate, uh, those markets operate. You can retain a role for the state, but as private sector operations become more dominant, the role for the state would shrivel because it's unable to manage in the face of private sector onslaughts. So we've seen these rebellions uh, against these, uh, these demonstrations, revolts, rebellions, whatever you want to call them, in India against these reforms from last year, uh, reforms to the, the grain marketing system, because farmers think that this option of a private sector possibility would soon come not to be the option, but the de facto choice that they would choice, the de facto um, move that they would have to make. Right. That, uh, that they'd be, in a sense, pushed down that road. So how how does this um, compare? I mean, you were saying that in in the rest of the the third world, much of it. Mm. And speaking of that, I think it's interesting to note that Pakistan has something similar. There is a minimum support price for wheat, yeah. especially. So there's also that same kind of um, conversation constantly happening in Pakistan that we yeah. need to open up and privatize the markets mm. rather than the state doing this. But you were saying that in much of sub-Saharan Africa and in, in, in much of the rest of the third world, this had already happened 30 years ago. Um, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, it was mediated by the IMF and World Bank through structural adjustment programs. So what, you know, if you could give us a general template, what does that look like in, sure. in the world of agriculture? Okay, so I mean, and, and just to go to your point, I mean, the International Monetary Fund for many, many years has wanted Pakistan to eliminate price supports to wheat farmers. I mean, this has been part and parcel of a series of demands they've, they've made for stabilization facilities. But of course, stabilization facilities are a process of negotiation. And this is one of the ones which really is it's not such an important one for them until they get to the stage where other reforms have been implemented. And then that would come up again. But to go back to the main point of your question, structural adjustment in agriculture, uh, you know, over the course of the, the late 80s and early 90s, the thing about structural adjustment Structural adjustment was a wide range of policies implemented across a large number of countries during the 1980s and the early 1990s. But in agriculture, structural adjustment took very specific forms. It included the privatization of state marketing boards and parastatals that worked in agriculture, parastatals that might be producing fertilizers or seeds or pesticides or such things. Uh, it also included the uh, reduction leading to elimination of price supports for farmers in particular crops. Uh, it led to the removal of barriers to trade uh, in, in agricultural markets, allowing greater role for private sector agents to act in markets. 
but also a removal of barriers to trade in international markets, allowing multinational corporations to enter agricultural and food markets in, in countries undergoing structural adjustment in a way that had never previously been the case. And it also uh, um, resulted in uh, the devaluation of local currencies, which made imports far more expensive, but made exports far cheaper. Mm. The idea behind structural adjustment was that as you remove the state uh, from the lives of farmers, the private sector would move in. And once they had moved in, private sector price signals would much more strongly dictate resource allocation decisions, both by farmers, but also by other economic actors in the agricultural sector. And this would lead to a much more export-oriented agriculture in which comparative advantage would, would allow gains from trade to accrue to the country through the international sales of the agricultural products in exchange for the importation of those things that they didn't produce. But the trouble with this process was many. The first and most important issue, which, which, was, which was really uh, seen very widely in sub-Saharan Africa, was the presumption that when you removed the state, the private sector would move in, just didn't happen. Mm. Uh, that when marketing boards were shut, the private sector didn't move into marketing in a large scale in the way that was envisaged by the architects of structural adjustment that when the parastatals were shut, the private sector multinational providers of inputs or the, the traders that might purchase didn't move in in the same way. And so what we saw in sub-Saharan Africa was quite chaotic marketing arrangements for more than 10 years. And it was also the case that um, when barriers to international trade were lowered, you saw a, an explosion of food imports into countries, uh, usually imports from subsidized American, European, or Japanese sources, not so much Japan, I should say, but certainly European and American sources, subsidized sources, which because they were subsidized, were able to outcompete local production on price. And so therefore, local livelihoods uh, in countries undergoing structural adjustment were upended because they could no longer sell into local markets in the face of international imports. So the result of this process was to facilitate processes of agrarian change because the only farmers that were able to navigate these intricacies were the strong who could navigate the processes mm. of market-led restructuring. And so what we saw was an increasing bifurcation in sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America between larger scale, much more capitalist oriented farming operations, and then increasingly marginalized small scale petty commodity producers who face this simple reproduction squeeze that I talked about already uh, as a consequence of this process of structural adjustment. The contemporary agrarian crisis that we see goes back to this process of structural adjustment. Um, but structural adjustment was, was imposed in countries at an uneven pace. It was introduced across countries differentially. And so it's been playing out for a long time. And it's also something which, as the Indian case demonstrates, some of the main reforms that you would label 
structural adjustment type reforms. You know, the Indian government wanted to bring it in just last year. This is in, in a set of policies that we've seen now for uh, a period of going back almost almost 37 years. Right. So it's a long-winded process of restructuring. So this, yeah, I think that's a really important point you're making, that this is an ongoing kind of struggle where certain actors want these reforms and others are are pushing back. Um, one thing that you mentioned that's really interesting to me, just stood out, is how when you get rid of state marketing boards, private traders do not step in. Uh, because I think I'm familiar with almost the opposite case, like in Mozambique, when they got rid of private traders, uh, the state was unable to step in. Or mm. when I think about Pakistan now, uh, the so-called arti, the middleman, um, if you get rid of that person as as a purchaser of crops, then it would probably be, I mean, the state could do it in Pakistan, but probably would not do it uh, mm. competently anyway. But I think the more more important thing is the role that the the trader plays as a provider of credit and mm. capital to small farmers. Sure. sure. But there's several things that can be said there. And that is what that, you know, trading itself is not a one-off activity. That what you get are small traders who are aggregators of crops. And those small traders sell on. The RTs are, are aggregators. Mm -hmm. And they sell on. And eventually they sell on to much bigger operations. And what, what I mean when I say the private sector didn't move in is that in some cases under adjustment, the private sector didn't move in. But in other cases, what you saw was that the private sector, when it did it didn't move in, moved in only under the condition that it was the only operation that was going to operate. And so you had the replacement of a state-owned monopoly with a private sector monopoly. Hmm. And that private sector monopoly took the rents, which would have accrued to the state-owned monopolist, and appropriated them as private profits. That's the reason why they wanted to move in. And that isn't to the benefit of farmers either. Um, so the, the, the key issue is the way in which, you know, state marketing boards as the final step can work to the benefits of farmers or cannot. And that's not a question where it's a yes, no answer. That's a question where it depends upon the specific circumstances in a specific setting. Um, you know, in Vietnam, the state marketing boards, which are responsible for the international sale of rice, have been very successful in making Vietnam one of the largest rice exporters in the world. Local marketing is done by the aggregators. They're the ones that, that, that buy the rice and sell on, but eventually ends up with the state trading corporation. Mm. That state trading corporation does make a premium over what farmers get in order to run their operations. They do accrue those rents. But it has been a system which has benefited Vietnamese farmers greatly. By way of contrast, when the private sector did not move into cocoa marketing in Ghana, the result of this was a decline in cocoa production, a decline in earnings in the rural economy, and an expansion of agrarian poverty in Ghana in the main cocoa growing regions. And this crisis in the cocoa sector was only really resolved when, after having done away with a parastatal marketing board, the government decided in the end to recreate a parastatal marketing board. And when it recreated that marketing board, it didn't create the old model. It went for a lean, efficient, market-oriented marketing board, something akin to what here in Canada was like the Canadian 
wheat board. Right. And that more modern marketing board has actually been incredibly beneficial uh, to farmers over the course of the past five or eight years who have seen their, the cocoa farmers have seen their, their incomes go up quite, quite well uh, because of having a, if you like, pro-farmer marketing board rather than a pro-state marketing board. So one has to be careful about drawing, you know, distinctions. Sometimes this state private distinction is quite misleading. You know, private sector uh, operations can be highly competitive or highly monopolistic. Private state sector operations can be very efficient or highly inefficient. You know, forms of ownership do not determine efficiency. What determines efficiency is a response to competitive pressures and the fact that you have to innovate because of competition. You know, so ownership is something that is, well, it's something of a neoliberal poster boy as to why we need private ownership, but it is actually quite misleading. Right. So it's it's really about getting into the, as you said, the specific circumstances or the nitty gritties yes. of what is the balance yes. of forces? What are the what are yes. the competitive pressures? All of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to pick up on another point that you made, which is the reason. One of the reasons that farmers in the global south have a difficult time competing on the international market is that farmers in the global north are subsidized so heavily by their countries. Now, this has always confused me, and maybe you can help me understand this. So, it's the World Trade Organization, but also bilateral agreements through which countries negotiate what subsidies should look like, what tariffs uh, or taxes on imports and exports should look like. Um, and I guess the, the neoliberal mantra would be, you know, we want to lower tariffs as much as possible and we want subsidies to just be gone, which is also, as you pointed out, the IMF and World Bank are also on that. Um, the United States wants India and Pakistan to get rid of the, the minimum support price for farmers and other supports like that. But, but, isn't it supposed to be like a quid pro quo, like tit for tat? If, okay, we're going to lower subsidies, if you lower subsidies. So if the Global North is so heavily subsidized, how would they get off asking Global South countries to get rid of their subsidies and other trade barriers? Well, the, the short answer is it's pure hypocrisy. That's the, that's the short answer. Um, Subsidies remain in the United States and Europe primarily for, I would say, two reasons. In the United States, subsidies remain because of the, the magnified political clout of voters in largely agricultural states in the United, United States Midwest, where lower population states uh, elect senators uh, who have just as much say as senators from large population states. And so therefore, those senators uh, from low population rural states have a, have a vested interest in maintaining their political base, which is rural, and therefore vested interest in maintaining and indeed expanding subsidy regimes to their farmers. Mm. So, you know, the American government may talk about free trade. But the nitty gritty of American politics is that subsidy regimes continue in order to ensure that senators in grain producing states in particular get reelected. In Europe, it's slightly more complicated because 
what we have is the residual of a common agricultural policy, which reflects a time in which Europe was a food deficit producing region and needed to increase food production for Europeans. Hmm. And so systems of farm support were brought in and dominated European-wide institutionalized budgets. Now, that domination has been maintained over the course of half a century. That large share of the European Union's budget, which goes into the common agricultural policy, is a historical legacy of another time, which they have not been able to undo. And part of the reason they've not been able to undo it, again, is the outsized way in which rural France, in particular, has a grip over some basic political equations in France. And this then reflects French negotiating positions in the European Union. France, far more so than the other big European power, which, of course, is Germany. So you see these subsidies regimes maintained. Then you've got the role of the World Trade Organization. You know, the World Trade Organization manages a set of rules agreed, signed off, and started to be implemented in 1995. And so it's managing these sets of rules. And one of these rules are around, you know, trading relationships in agriculture. But the way in which these rules were set up is it allowed developed countries to maintain far higher levels of subsidies than developing countries. And I don't want to get into the technical details as to why this was the case. But essentially, uh, when the negotiations were taking place, the developed countries had the trade expertise that allowed them to write the rules in a way which benefited them to the detriment of developing countries. Mm. You know, when the rules that were that have been implemented since 1995 were, um, uh, were being negotiated, sub-Saharan Africa was represented by a handful of people, you know, who had very little training in trade negotiations. And this for a huge geographical area with no support from the then General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade itself. It was highly asymmetrical negotiations. So this is a this is a world trading system which has been rigged since really the end of World War II, rigged to favor the developed countries over the rest of the world. One should note, though, that this rigged mercantilist global food and agricultural system, it just really replicates the rigged global food and, and, and agricultural system of the colonial period, when under colonialism, you know, you had rigged trade relations to benefit the metropolitan countries, where well, we still have globally rigged trade rules, which favor the powerful metropolitan countries. So that's, I think, a very key point in the sense that Nowadays, we talk about decolonization and decolonial stuff a lot. And it's just kind of like, look at the architecture of the global system, especially when it comes to trade and, and that kind of stuff. It hasn't really changed. And so in, in that context, for a global South country to say, no, we want to support our farmers, we want to support our agriculture and not simply um, leave them at the mercy of an international market, which is rigged to the favor of the global north, then that's, that's really... Uh, absolutely necessary in that sense. It's absolutely important, as you're pointing out. 
Uh, and I think you 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 mentioned the the question of bifurcation, which I I wanted to ask uh, you to get into a little bit more. You've already talked about the inequality between those who are able to take advantage of uh, the opening up of markets and privatization and those uh, who aren't. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more about this bifurcation, what it actually looks like uh, in, in, uh, in say, I mean, you gave us the example of Ghana versus Vietnam. So what, what would that look like? Hmm. Well, I mean, if we look at, I mean, bifurcation is this idea that in farming and agricultural sectors, what we see in developing countries, what we are seeing is the emergence of two distinct, shall we say, ways of organizing economic activity or two distinct modes of productive behavior, uh, two, dis- two quite distinct farming subsectors, if you like. So hence by two, bifurcation. Um, what you see, first of all, is the consolidation and expansion of large-scale, far more capitalist forms of farm organization, which uh, produce for national markets and for international markets. Uh, And these enterprises are run very often by managers. Uh, These managers report to a boss who may be a landlord, but could also be a business. Uh, and have to uh, generate certain levels of productivity uh, in in the markets, in in the production of the things they're producing, and generate certain levels of revenues uh, in the markets where they're selling, while at the same time minimizing costs. So these are run as as much more capitalist-oriented operations. If you take large Brazilian transnational agricultural and livestock companies, these are sort of that kind of operation writ large. You know, so the operation of JBS, which is the world's largest livestock producer, is the way, is that kind of, you know, finely hued capitalist institution writ large. That's the one side. On the other side of this bimodal distribution are those small scale petty commodity producers who over the past 25 years have become even more squeezed, whose simple reproduction squeeze, this inability to even cover the costs of producing, has become more and more stretched over the course of of the 21st century. And with debt distress rising, and with, it should also be said, you know, in South Asia in particular, increasing numbers of farmer suicides, what we see is many people opting to give up farming leave And so this squeezed farming sector generates uh, rising numbers of what what Jan Bremen calls footloose labor, Uh, labor that moves back and forth between the country and the town, you know, uh, working temporarily in the town for a wage, going back for a wage, retaining a garden, but really trying to construct a very precarious livelihood across various social spaces. This is a group which uh, Vladimir Lenin would have referred to as semi-proletarians. This right. is the group that is that has really grown uh, as small-scale petty commodity producers get forced out, squeezed out of farming. But the real thing that we've had 
you know, beyond farming in the course of the past 20 years has been the rise of this other group, which Marx wrote about in Capital, uh, which I think is really important to really understand. And that is this group called the relative surplus population. The population that is surplus to the requirements of capital accumulation. And what this means is basically for capital to further accumulate, they do not need this population to buy their products. They can have other groups in society buy their products. So this group gets left behind. The detritus of capitalist development. And this relative surplus population then becomes the foundation of what I think in the era of COVID-19 and 2020 is a very important concept from political economy, which during 2020 and the pandemic, I haven't seen used enough, but I think is really important. And that's this concept of social murder, that Mm -hmm. relative surplus populations can effectively be subjected to such stringent lives by the forces of capital accumulation that they die in excess numbers. And this is, according to Engels, effectively murder conducted by ruling classes upon the subaltern because they've been left behind. So that's what I mean really by this bifurcation, a small group of very large scale mega capitalist mega farms, a squeezed small scale petty commodity producing sector in many countries. But the thing that really has to be gotten to grips with is this footloose labor, the relative surplus population and social murder. So th- there's something, um, I guess, that confuses me about the the model that you've just laid out of bifurcation. When I look at countries like India and Pakistan, mm. so uh, I'm not uh, I'm not too sure about what the rest of the world looks like in detail. Uh, but because the protests that we see in India, um, some of those farmers have a lot of land and they have a lot of capital. The ones who are against these reforms, mm. where and same in Pakistan. When I look at the the similar kind of counterparts who are protesting against IMF and World Bank policies, are these very large uh, farmers who have you know hundreds of acres of land? They're hiring wage labor. Their main beef is usually the lack of government subsidies for electricity, but they also want minimum support prices and stuff like that. But but I would imagine those to be the the kinds who would be taking advantage of the bifurcation to be moving toward international markets or toward that kind of competitive capitalist agriculture. Um, So what's the, you know, what's the distinction there or what am I missing there? I think the the distinction here is these are not the large scale mega farms that I'm I'm talking about. The Mm. farmers in India, these are relatively prosperous farmers who have managed to maintain their, 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 their lives during the course of the Green Revolution up to now. But but these lives have been sustained by very specific accumulation strategies. And what this strategy is, is that um, continued accumulation cannot be sustained on the basis of farming. And so what these farmers do is they invest the resources that they're generating into another accumulation strategy, and that is migration. Mm. And so what you see is that these farmers are members of a Northwest Indian diaspora that spread around the world in which um, uh, family members move to other countries. 
with their educational credentials and start to move up, you know, into the prosperous middle classes, are able to remit significant amounts of money back to their homes, allowing these farms to survive the squeezes that middle, that medium scale farms can face uh, in uh, in the face of these of these pressures. So, you know, I must say that when these protests started out, I thought, okay, these are rich peasants that want to maintain their dominance in the Northwest Indian countryside. And I sort of shifted my position just because one sees tractors and one sees people that are eating pizza doesn't mean that these are the large scale capitalist farms of which I'm talking about. Certainly they're not the small scale petty commodity producers, but these are farmers who face limits to accumulation and were unable to transition into these large scale farms primarily because of difficulties in acquiring land and land in sufficient size that would make wholesale mechanization a useful strategy. Mm. And so you pursue, when you face a limit to accumulation, you pursue something else, and that is migration, you know, to the Gulf, to the UK, to North America, to Australia, whatever. And that's why you get some family members educated. And that's one of the reasons why there's been such diaspora, or, or the United States, I forgot the United States, Sorry about that. Um, that's one of the reasons why there's been such widespread diaspora support for these farmer protests, because, you know, many of the diaspora are one or two generation removed from those farming circumstances. But there's no doubt about it. That these medium scale farmers do face a threat to their livelihood if price supports are removed. And that's the reason why they're, they're, they're mobilizing against it. So then we have this condition. We've got these large-scale capitalist farmers who are adopting uh, arguably methods of production that, as we've discussed uh, uh, on this podcast, and you've written about this recently, might even lead to the emergence of new diseases, might help with that. And Rob Wallace has really um, uh, kind of uh, grounded that analysis there as well. Um but then we also see that the relations between the, the global north and the global south can also exacerbate food insecurity. I mean, this is a problem now that Pakistan is facing, especially with its wheat crop. Uh, it doesn't seem clear that wheat production in Pakistan is going to be able to keep up with domestic demand. Mm. We already had a wheat crisis last year. Uh, we'll probably have one this year, uh, leading to dramatic inflation. And and so uh, when we had Utsapatnaik on, she was talking about the importance of food security. Um, so we've got these these kind of um, the the bifurcation is one aspect of of what you're discussing in terms of you've got rich farmers or sorry not even rich farmers capitalist farmers yeah. you've got rel but then on the other side you've got these relatively prosperous people and then you've got others middle scale you've got poor people and they're having they're they're squeezed. Yes. Um, but there's no, we don't see any productive employment for them outside of agriculture either. It's not like there's booming industry in Pakistan. Even in India, um, we don't see alternative mechanisms for livelihood. So, so we're now discussing a whole range of problems that are associated with agriculture, diseases, mm -hmm. uh, food insecurity, and then just a livelihood crunch, um, which, which is... I think it's so important to focus on that because it's so easy to underestimate how important agriculture is and mm. all of the focuses on urban industries and stuff like that. So people, people might forget this. 
Um, so, I, mean, I mean, if I can just if I can sure, just sure. say a few words, Numan. First of all, this livelihoods crisis precisely speaks to trying to under, use this concept of relative surplus population. That this livelihoods crisis means that we're not talking about small groups that are left behind. You know, in a country like Pakistan, you were talking about tens and tens of millions of people who basically have been left behind. And um, ruling elites or ruling classes ultimately at the end of the day don't care about them because they are superfluous to their needs. And so that's where this livelihoods crisis comes from. This agrarian crisis generates a livelihoods crisis which squeezes people out or if they stay they've got no mechanism for living and it's a livelihoods crisis that we see in many parts of the world on the issue though of food security this is it's such an it's it's something which really really annoys me about the way in which Global institutions operate, and it really demonstrates the way in which global institutions are purveyors of ideology. So the people who, from outside Pakistan, for example, from the IMF, are bringing their policy advice in, in exchange for loans, are using a model of the economy which is based upon an understanding of macroeconomics, which they essentially learned in their first year undergraduate <laughs> economics class. And this model was developed, you know, in the 1950s and is the same basic one that's been taught to first year economics students ever since. The thing that really demonstrates the ideological character of this is that macroeconomics in developing countries don't work that way. You know, the macroeconomic model looks at consumption, investment, government spending, exports, imports. What it doesn't look at is the role of food security in sustaining macroeconomic balance. So in a country where a poor urban person is likely to spend 60 to 70% of any cash they get on food. Mm -hmm. Or in a country where a poor rural dweller is likely to spend 50% of any cash income that they make on food. Mm -hmm. What this means is that food affects the macro economy. If food has to be imported, it affects the trade balance. Hence, it affects the macro economy. If food has to be imported by the government because private sector agents aren't importing it, it affects the government budgetary balance and hence the macroeconomy. Food prices, because they're such a large component of people's spending, affect inflation, which also affects the macroeconomy. All of a sudden, we've got food affecting these macroeconomic parameters, and yet food in the IMF model of the economy is the same as anything else. It's mm -hmm. just another widget. But unless you, you, you secure food security, you guarantee macroeconomic imbalances. 
And the way in which you guarantee food security is not by exacerbating your trade deficit because you've got to import food. That's not how you secure balance. So there's some really fundamental misunderstandings by these people trained in developed country universities about how developing economy macroeconomies operate. This is something which was understood by someone like Nicholas Calder. It was certainly understood by Raul Prebisch. It was certainly understood by people like Celso Furtado. There is a there is an agrarian constraint to macroeconomic growth and development, which conventional economic models simply ignore. And because they ignore them, you get systematic economic failure. It's not rocket science, it's social science. And yet they still come in with these preconceived ideas. No, I think that's extremely important because the debate in Pakistan is also, well, let's just, imp- some people say, let's just import uh, the stuff we need for food. And it's kind of like, well, have you looked at the crisis that we're in as a consequence of importing everything in the first place? Yeah. Um, so that's that's very important. Um, and I guess rolling on that, I in the shadow of COVID-19, I, I, I kind of want to get a sense of where you think this bifurcated world of agrarian crisis is headed. Do you, I mean, I'm not asking you for optimism, but I'm, I'm just asking you for a level-headed look at, at what this looks like. I think... Uh... I mean, my, I, you know, political economy is not about prediction. You know, that, leave that to fortune tellers because only fortune tellers predict. And because they're fortune tellers, most of the time they're wrong. Uh, what I would say is this, and that is that the pandemic reshapes everything. Um, the pandemic could be an opportunity in which tendencies towards crisis manifest in many parts of societies around the world could start to be ameliorated, not not ended, but at least ameliorated. Alternatively, crisis could be used as opportunity, the opportunity to continue a more fundamental restructuring of the terms and conditions by which political economies operate. My fear is that the outcome of the crisis will be used precisely to continue to reconfigure the terms and conditions by which political economies operate. In part, in developing countries, the debt dynamics and debt distress that we're witnessing is leading to the wholesale, um, again, reverse reversion to policies which are being developed by governments in conjunction with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. These institutions are allowing slight expansions of the fiscal space because of the crisis. But once the crisis starts to subside, that fiscal space will close very, very rapidly. And um, and uh, we will see a period of further retrenchment. One should be under no illusion about the role of the IMF and the World Bank in global capitalism. These are two institutions which are dedicated to the building, development, and maturation of global capitalist relations of production. And the building development and maturation of global capitalist relations of production includes agriculture. So I would expect the the agrarian crisis to continue in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, because especially in developing countries, as the temporary fiscal space that they're offered is withdrawn, there will be retrenchment, and that retrenchment will particularly hit rural livelihoods once more very hard uh, in ways that do not affect the rich at all. Right. So I'm quite pessimistic about it. 
Yeah, it doesn't, uh, doesn't sound very good uh, when you've got crisis and you add crisis on top of that. But of course, for the for the for the global for you know for the global rich for the global capitalist class class the crisis is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to once more re restructure the world economy in a different way. And one has to remember that the global crisis now is different than the one in two thousand and eight. The two thousand and eight financial crisis was a crisis at a time in which the global technology companies, which were which are so dominant now, were very small. Hmm. Now we have a situation where global where, where global capital is driven by global technology companies. So it's a very different period. And so how this crisis plays out is something which will look very, very different, I think, uh, than, say, the 2008 crisis or the 1997 crisis. Well, going on on this um, kind of thing about crisis and, and pessimism, so to speak, um, I, I guess I wanted to ask you, how would you address students and youth, especially in a country like Pakistan, who are, I mean, for the most part, you know, students and youth are just going to look out for this for themselves to say, how can I get a good job or whatever and get out of this? But there's going to be those who are thinking, can I, can I uh, reconcile that with solving the problems that my country faces? Or can I take, you know, even more uh, radical measures to do that? Uh, mm -hmm. Some of that advice you've already given us, which is don't just take macroeconomics that is being taught to you on face value. It is, it doesn't make sense for de developing countries. But mm -hmm. beyond that, what what other uh, ways of thinking do you suggest, or how do you think we should engage, especially the question of agrarian development? Mm -hmm. Well, on the one hand, I mean, going back to how you started this 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 uh, particular comment, you know, a lot of people are looking out for themselves. You know, all they want is the good job, the secure future. You know, this is, unfortunately, the un ultimate triumph of neoliberalism, isn't it? It's uh, mm. Margaret Thatcher. There is no such thing as society. You know, there are just communities and their families. And it's all about looking out for oneself. It's unfortunate. However, to transcend contemporary crises, we have to look beyond ourselves because this requires collective action. And there's no way we can solve contemporary crises without collective action. And for those who are currently interested in collective action, that's great. But for those who are more individually focused, collective crisis eventually comes down to bear on the individual. And if the only way out of collective crisis is collective action, it is beholden to those who are individually motivated sooner or later to start thinking about ways in which they can become collectively involved. I mean, in particular for students in Pakistan, the first point I would have to stress, and I really have to stress this, I am not by any means a close observer of the scene in Pakistan. I mean, I am an outsider. I, I get the information that I have from what I read. So, you know, I have to be very careful in what I would say. But what I would say is this. The first thing is if we think about, you know, what you know, a political economist might describe as the ruling class, but we can more generally just call the ruling elites, the political, the economic, the landed, and the military elites. The thing to remember about these elites more than anything else, I think it's been demonstrated time and time again since the late 1980s, if not before, and that is that these elites do not care about much of Pakistan's population. They do not care about the agrarian crisis because it does not impinge upon their lives. 
Their interest is facilitating their own enrichment. And for those that are dispossessed by processes of development, rural and urban, you know, they don't care. You know, we see in Pakistan this phenomena that I've, I've already spoken about, the growing relative surplus population, surplus to the accumulation requirements of the elite, those that can be left behind and in a pandemic left to die. It seems to me that a resolution of the crisis, first of all, requires a political resolution before there can be any kind of economic resolution. And my own view on this has been fairly clear for decades. And that is going back to the ways in which political mobilizations in Pakistan in the late 60s and in the early 70s mobilized people in support of an alternative that they thought would be different and would be better. And I've spoken with this with my family members who were younger and alive at the time. And this was without doubt the most optimistic time of their lives. You know, when the possibilities of a, per, of a peasant worker alliance coming together to mobilize for socially just, progressive political change was possible. And I mean, this is what Pakistan still needs, a worker-peasant alliance which is not concerned with the interests of the elite, but is concerned with the interests of the mass of the population. The efforts to try and generate a peasant worker alliance in Pakistan have continually been immobilized through the machinations of the powerful, and in particular, the deployment of the use of religion as a marker of identity in a way which transfers political affiliations away from those around livelihood, occupation, towards those identities which can be manipulated in far more regressive ways. In terms of the way in which such a, a movement could foresee a way out of the crisis, I just turn my attention to the most impressive poverty reduction episodes that we have had in human history, and that has been wit those witnessed in East Asia since the 1950s up until the present day. And if we look at the economic trajectories of Korea or Taiwan or China or Vietnam and even some others, what we have witnessed is increasing the purchasing power of the rural population was a way of boosting the economy, mm. also reducing poverty and getting agriculture far more productive, facilitating the ability of those in the countryside to accumulate became the basis of capital accumulation beyond the countryside. And once that had started to be underway, paying, paying pivotal attention to local processes of manufacturing development was absolutely central to improving living standards beyond the initial impetus given by agrarian accumulation. There, there are, I don't, I, you know, I'm not a modernization theorist, but you can see that, you know, using agrarian accumulation as the basis of improving living standards and improving equity 
using that as a springboard by which to begin a process of industrialization through the diversification of the livelihoods of those in the countryside, particularly in China's uh, uh, village uh, township and village enterprises in the 1980s. And then using that as a platform by which to build larger scale manufacturing capacity. This is the way in which one can build a more equitable livelihood for that relative surplus population and the more broadly dispossessed in Pakistan. It can be a class-based political project, as we've seen in Korea, in Taiwan, in China, and in Vietnam. But it can be a class-based political project which does benefit the bulk of the population. And that, I think, is better than the current circumstances. Yeah, That's uh, you know something which allows one to move forward into whatever a future might be. So not to not to pick a beef here, but then in a way you disagree with Henry Bernstein's pessimism about the capacity of agriculture to sustain industrialization. Oh, no, I do very much disagree with that. And the reason I disagree with that is something uh, that I mentioned to you before we actually started talking today. And that is, you know, to always remember that capital grows organically in localities and in communities. That's where capital emerges from. And if that's the case, you know, to somehow say that transnational capital is going to come to Pakistan and fuel a boom that is going to benefit everyone is simply whistling in the wind. It isn't what happened in China. It isn't what happened in Vietnam. It isn't what happened in Korea. And it isn't what happened in Taiwan. In all four of those countries, what we saw was a boom in the rural economy laying the preconditions of more broad-based capitalist development. And um, I think if one recognizes that, you know, particularly in China, it's so easy to forget the fact that, you know, China produces so much for us. But this is relatively recent. If we went back to the mid-1990s, there was no foreign investment in China. China's economy was driven for the first 15 years of its boom by a growing rural economy and diversifying farmers using township and village enterprises to build nascent manufacturing capacity. And it was only from a position of that strength that they started to invite in. And it should also be said on highly restrictive terms, international capital. That's the kind of way in which I think one can see a much more broad-based development schema uh, taking place. You know, I lived for a long time in, in Vietnam, and Vietnam has followed that same kind of a path. Vietnam globally remains still defined. It's down to find as a lower middle income country. But the fact of the matter is, is that most Vietnamese remain poor. But in terms of meeting, you know, basic living standards, Vietnam does extraordinarily well. There's no such thing as hunger in the country uh, on any kind of sizable scale whatsoever. Everyone has access to a viable livelihood. And it has to be said, over the course of this pandemic, 35 people have died in Vietnam. The country has handled pandemic in my view better than probably any other country in the world mm. um, there's a lot to be said from from you know boosting the rural economy as a foundation of moving people out of poverty into a different world 
fantastic and i think that's a that's an excellent place oh. to conclude as well oh no but before we conclude one proviso there is one proviso which i have to I have to stress and that is it must be done in climate friendly ways because uh absolutely the, the fundamental constraint that poor people face is the impact of climate change on their lives however i do think that one has to get away from the myopia which says that industrialization equals brown and something else equals green there is no reason why we cannot have a more sustainable ecologically friendly process of industrialization yeah just because we industrialized one way in the industrial revolution or in china does not mean that we have to industrialize inevitably in that way everywhere and destroy the planet in which we live